Hi, this is Will. And this is Sri. Welcome to the Technium, where we talk about the edge of technology and what we can build with it. An optimistic look at the road ahead. How's it going, Sri? Pretty good, pretty good. I'm here in the in space already, so um, you know, I'm already pumped for this uh, week's episode. <laughs> Which is good because we are on episode ten, technically the end of season one. And so, for those of uh, you that are listening. We're going to be taking a quick break to bookend our season, and so we will be back in uh, a few weeks. Not too long, promise, under a month. So you will be back with our low production values, but high value content. So uh, that's all good. So what are you drinking today? Well, today I'm a little bit run of the mill. I'm uh, just drinking water, actually. thought I need some more hydration in my life after well, weeks of drinking uh, various alcoholic beverages. Right. And jinx, jinx, I am also drinking water. So Nice. Cool. And it's not a fancy Whole Foods you know, artisanal water, though. No, no. We're, we're a little bit off schedule this week, so I didn't get a chance to run in. All I had was the stuff I drank two weeks ago, and I did not want to drink tonics again. So here we are. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, every good party needs a water break. And so, right. uh, you know, here we are. All right. And and it's a, a good way to end our season. So, so are you, are you all ready for this week's episode? I am. I am. We're talking about data log, right? That's right. So this week we're talking about data log and have you heard about or used data log before? It's... It's something that has caught my eye in the past because I think there is a subset of the functional programming community, uh, specifically the closure community, who is excited about uh, their variant of data log that they use, which I'm sure we'll touch on. And so it's a kind of a topic which is at the edge of you know my my comfort level. It's something that I've watched from a distance, but. Yeah, I'm excited to sort of go into the details and see why what makes it so exciting. Yeah, it's a little bit of the same here. Like through the space of local first software and the people that are thinking about reinventing computing, I kind of also happened upon this and through functional. And definitely the closure people have been excited about data log through uh, Datomic, which is a company started by Closure's founder, Rich. Hickey. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with his talks, I would suggest go and watch any of them. And uh, he usually has insight into how we're doing things now and perhaps questioning why do we do it that way? So with that, we're going to jump into data log, which is surprising because data log is really old. Like logic programming in itself dates back to the 70s. And then I think data log as it's formalized is only in the early 80s or so. And so that's already 40 years or so. And it's only recently found a resurgence among various pockets of people interested in seemingly different things, but they've seemed to kind of converged on data log as a way to help them solve their problems. So what's the spiel? What, what, why are people excited about it? What is this? Yeah, so, so data log, to start, it's a de- declarative logic language that is a subset of prolog. 
And it's often used as a query language for databases where you want an inference from a basic set of facts. And one of the interesting things about Datalog is that it's not a Turing complete language. And so most of the time you'll hear from programming language enthusiasts and programmers themselves that they want the most powerful and the most expressive language that they can get their hands on. And non-Turing complete programming languages like HTML is often belittled as a, oh, that's, that's a thing that kids play with sort of thing. But I think after reading about the constraints that declarative languages give you and the fact that programs in general have become so complex that it's hard for us to even wrap our head around, I, I'm coming around to the perspective that adding constraints to a language will help you manage the complexity in the problems that you're trying to solve in that particular domain. And so I, I think that would be how I would summarize why there is a recent resurgence in interest in, in this language. Yeah, I think that constraints in programming languages are actually a good thing in many ways. It allows uh, you to prevent the user from shooting themselves in the foot while still giving them the power that they need in the moment. So most working programmers are familiar with a similarly constrained programming language, a language like SQL, which yeah. it doesn't allow you to write arbitrarily complex programs and logic, but at the same time fits the problem domain of selecting data, filtering it, and, and projecting it in a variety of ways. It does that really, really well. Mm -hmm. And I think that logic programming in many ways is equivalent to a query language like SQL in that it can do almost, uh, uh, it can do everything that SQL can, but it's also really interesting in that you can also make inferences. So I've used a couple of lo logic programming languages before uh, mm -hmm. in the context of like CS classes and also a little bit at work. And in my experience, basically how you interact with a logic programming language like Datalog is that you input a bunch of facts about the world. So uh, you say that, for example, the classic example of, um, you know, Socrates is a man. And uh, then you also input some inference rules about the world. So you say all men are mortal. And then you throw it over to the, the logic programming engine. And then it will basically take the facts that you've given it, as well as the rules that you've given it, and expand them and say, well, if Socrates is a man and all men are mortal, then it must be true that uh, Socrates is mortal. This is like the kind of classic toy example, but it kind of gives you a flavor for what a logic language can do. Yeah, I think the thing that worked in my mind as a main mental model to hang my head on when it came to data log was that it's best understood as a cycle where you start with a set of facts. And then there are a set of rules dictating the relationships between the existing facts, and you use those rules to generate new facts. And so once you generate new facts, you take those facts and you slot them next to the old ones, and then see if there can be even more new facts that can be generated from the set of rules or, or from the query. And in that way, the cycle keeps repeating itself. Now, the reason why it's important that data log is not Turing complete is because it's 
then guaranteed to terminate. Like you wouldn't want a query language to uh, not terminate. And even worse, you don't know for any query that you write, whether it would actually terminate or not, right? And so that's an example of where the constraint is what gives the power, uh, I guess, here yeah, so that it's, it's actually practical and workable. Um, and then to kind of jump back to what you said in an earlier comment about the declarative languages like SQL, like before SQL, there was, even before relational databases, there were hierarchical databases. And what hierarchical databases was just exactly that. You store uh, data in a hierarchy that was predefined, but that also meant that a piece of data could only belong to a, a certain category, right? It couldn't belong to multiple categories. And so that also meant that when you write a query for it, you had to know what the query path was ahead of time. And even worse, before these declarative query languages existed, you had to know how it was written on disk. Mm -hmm. And so then those were all like implementation details that got mixed up with your query. And because SQL is so old and because we use it so often that we just kind of forget that this declarative language is taking care of a lot of that sort of nitty gritty stuff for us. And it has decades and decades of man hours dedicated to optimizing it for query and retrieval. And so I, I think that's, that's one thing that I guess I want to point out when it comes to declarative languages and why there also is this gravitation towards it. And also that's to say you need the right building blocks, obviously, right? If you have the wrong building blocks, mm -hmm. people feel like they're hemmed in and then they need like an escape hatch for it and it's they'll abandon it. But I, I think for Prolog Data Log, it's been around uh, for a while now. It's found a resurgence. So it's definitely worth a look at. Yeah, definitely. I think that, yeah, once you have a problem which fits a well-optimized domain, for example, searching a database, for example, you're better off using a constrained language that informs an engine or a solver to do the heavy lifting for you rather than writing the solution in a completely general purpose language. This is why we have databases and why you use SQL. Yeah, so I want to think a little bit about what use cases you might want to hand over your problem to a data log engine rather than uh, writing the solution completely bespoke in your own like favorite general purpose programming language. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are a couple of things come to mind. So in many large companies, you interact with these things called knowledge graphs, which are basically a set of facts of, of, about the world that, the, that you've kind of curated. And one thing that you most frequently want to do is run some type of complex query over this knowledge graph. For example, give me the names of all of the countries whose capital has more than 5 million people living in it. And so this is something that you could do very uh, easily with a data log as a query engine, because if you have 
a knowledge graph that has the names of countries along with their capitals, as well as the population of those capitals. But you can specify that very simply and succinctly in data log, and it will output the set of country names that match that, that query language. But I think another one which you couldn't do in a just normal query language is solving some types of constraint satisfaction problems. Wait, uh, before you move on to, to that part, like when you say knowledge graph, is it a lot of times that companies would have databases and they're trying to run queries on it because of the example that you gave, it, it just seems more like a query. So that's kind of like a table stakes you're saying for, for query languages, right? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, but, but the interesting thing about data log, which I think you don't have in, in a, in a traditional query language is that knowledge graph often looks like a set of facts and assertions uh -huh. uh, that is not bound by a schema. So in a knowledge mm. graph, you basically specify relations like this yeah. is a country and then there's a capitals. And then later on you can say, okay, now I have, I will attach the populations to the capitals. And then you can add a variety of facts about all of these entities without specifying sort of a priori the uh, scheme, the, the schema of the world that you're right. collecting. So yeah. what it kind of allows you to do, yeah, yeah, is, yeah, is kind of throw a bag of facts mm -hmm. and then like run queries over that without necessarily yeah. having to specify upfront, this is the kind of uh, problem that I'm trying to run a query over. Yeah, because I, I was going to say that it really depends on the type of data that your your domain is in, because I've worked on ones where it's pretty well contained by relations. And so it's like half hierarchical, half relational, but the, because the you have the ORM, it's really easy to run the query because you you kind of know the, the path and the relations. But the the... On the other hand, I've worked on data sets in which every table seemed connected to every other one for some reason or another. It's just it, the, the data is very interconnected. And as a result, the queries just looked more like graphs where you could take arbitrary paths. And sometimes you might get used to one more than the other because one is indexed and the other one isn't or, or for whatever, whatever reason. And, and so I guess I'm, I'm just piling on to say, oh, okay, yeah, I, I can see that. And so for data that tends to be more interconnected and hence the, the word knowledge graph, then, then data log query language might be better for that, right? Because if you have like planets, like facts about planets and the stars and the weather and I don't know, any number of things that are maybe more like a Wolfram Alpha, right? Where people can make mm -hmm. any num number of queries through any number of topics that maybe you want something like, like data log as, as a query language. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I think it makes sense in those kind of highly interconnected, but it's at the same time, but not as highly structured domains right. um, uh, like that. And then, so then uh, subsequently you were saying that like data log uh, beyond that, like beyond just kind of the table stakes query, like what it allows you to do is inferences. Yeah, basically. So, you know, I, I'm sure many uh, of our listeners are, or maybe even like the both of us have, have like worked on various logic puzzles where you're trying to find a solution within a set of constraints. Yeah. And so you might have things like, uh, there's like a sort of classic setup where you're painting houses 
on a, in a row on a, like of a neighborhood and uh, it has some rules like your HOA says that no two oh, houses adjacent yeah, to yeah, each yeah, other yeah, yeah. can uh, have the same color and then you can have some facts about like the uh, one owner doesn't like this one color and another owner doesn't like this one color right. and so like what is the coloring of the uh, of the houses in this neighborhood that will satisfy and uh, obviously this is a toy example but there are many many uh, you know things in the real world that do reduce to what's effectively finding constraints or solving for constraints within a domain. Have you run into it in the course of your work? Yeah, actually I have, I have run into them. It's, it's hard to name like very, very specific ones in a general purpose, like podcast, but yes, there are times where I have had to solve this kind of things and I didn't have data log. Right. And is, is there like a, a, specific project you can kind of describe in a sentence to, because you mentioned earlier, like painting houses, a, a toy, toy example sort of thing. So to kind of give people a sense of, Oh, okay. Like what sort of things would you run into? Yeah. I mean, I think, I guess I'll, I'll give you a high level summary. So basically yes, by all means, high level. Of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so basically it was uh, a type of like, infrastructure team where we were trying to allocate what kind of jobs would run on some different types of servers and there was some constraint like this thing needed high memory and the other one couldn't run on the same like server as another one because they both were you know high bandwidth applications Mm -hmm. and so we just basically had to allocate these different things. Yeah, uh, that, that makes a so, lot of sense because like the system that you have is resource source constrained and then you have all these jobs that want access to these resources and based on whatever you set up, like it's, it's a way to, I guess, effectively schedule the jobs or at least like monitor them so that the state of the entire system is stable, right? Yeah, basically. So I think there, there are definitely those cases, but yeah, so I think, I, I don't think that this is an everyday problem that you know working programmers are going to encounter all the time. But I think what's interesting about logic programming and, and data log specifically is that rather than simply querying over the facts you already know, you can give it facts and you can give it constraints or rules uh, about the world and then hand it over to the engine. And like you said, it goes through this loop of saying, here's what I know and here's what I can infer. And it'll just do this and do this and do this until it converges on uh, a set of facts that it can infer the set of facts that it can infer from its input, which is oftentimes a solution that you didn't know previously. Right. It's the maximal set of facts that it can infer given the original set of facts and the rules and the query that you gave it. And so because data log is not Turing complete, I think specifically it doesn't allow negation in the rule body and it doesn't allow recursion that it'll actually terminate. And so somewhere in that set of new facts, you can find something that you wouldn't have, you would have found it very difficult as a human to kind of figure out that that, the the, the inference, and this is why we build these like inference engines, right? And so- What what's a typical example of this sort of thing? I, I only have one in my mind right now, unless you have like a good one. I, I do have I do have one that actually is a better example of of a pro, of a project I've worked on that that could have benefited from data log. Uh huh. Oh, go go. 
Yeah, so I mean, I think just briefly, like I was working on a, a project that was basically trying to do uh, chemical discovery, uh, synthesizing chemicals from some input chemicals. And then basically what we had was uh, we had some input chemicals that we had uh, on hand and then a huge knowledge bank of chemical reactions that exist in the world, which we've mined from some academic papers. Right. And uh, basically we rewrote this, uh, this system that then recursively applied these chemical reactions and, until it gave us the set of chemicals that we could generate from our input chemicals. And, and we didn't use data log, we didn't use logic programming, but it fits really well into this, into this model. Again, making use of the fact that you can give it, you can throw facts and you can make it do inferences I can see this being useful for kind of all types of search problems, and specifically in the case of my project, the search of of drugs and and synthetic chemicals. So, so well, one, it sounds like it really works well when you understand the relationships between the facts. Like you already have the rules in mind, or you can like work it out, right? But if you for problems mm-hmm. in which you aren't really sure what the relationships are, are or what the rules even are then this is not the way to go. That, that's probably correct, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and, and then second of all, did you guys end up rolling your own inference engine? Because that seems to be quite a, I don't know, it depends. Like, is, is it a lot of work? Uh, it, it wasn't a lot of work, but it ended up being a lot of code for what ultimately you could have gotten for free using this kind of inference engine. It's mm-hmm. kind of like rolling your own database. Like you can sort of write your own key value store yeah, really simply, yeah, right. but then like anything beyond that, you should really ask yourself, why are you just not using the off the shelf thing? Right. The, the tickets of man hours is spent on all the different edge cases, right? You, you definitely like, once you read some of the basics of database, you do, you're like, oh, okay. It's actually conceptually relatively simple, but it's all, all the devils in the details there. And so I imagine it's the same with these constraint satisfaction problems and the logic programming languages that are tailored to solve them. Because effectively constraint satisfaction, if you can describe the problem as a graph problem, is effectively a graph search problem, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so then- yeah. So then, yeah, I think one of the things that when, when we were pre-gaming this episode, we were talking about how it, it would have been nice if something like data log was embedded in mainstream programming languages so that you don't have to write and implement your own constraint solver or even like graph search if you can like phrase it in this declarative way, right? And so... I haven't seen anything like that. Have Have you? I think the closest that I've seen is the Clojure community and their use of Datomic, mm. uh, which is a, a, their data log variant. Because the cool thing about Lisp is that you can use the macro system and many other powerful features of Lisp in order to basically have embedded domain-specific languages within your larger Lisp programs. And that's effectively what I see the Clojure community doing is that Clojure is a general purpose programming language. It's true and complete, mm-hmm. and it can do many, many things. But when you start wanting to do these types of 
queries or inferences and the task at hand lends itself to logic programming, then you can sort of drop into this domain specific language without switching to an entirely different language. That's just the flexibility that Lisp gives you. And so I don't know if this idea can expand to other languages beyond Lisp. Maybe there are many languages that we touched on in our functional programming everywhere episode where you know, many, many languages are getting functional programming concepts like macros and, and first-class first functions. So maybe you could see this kind of idea coming to JavaScript, maybe where you could have a little embedded domain-specific language within JavaScript. Right, and that, an MPN module well. that pulls in like 30, I don't know, 30 <laughs> gigs or something like that of, of modules, but but it doesn't have to be yeah. the case. Actually, like one thing that that I thought of while, while after I asked the question is there is a data log engine written in Rust that's meant to be an embeddable data log engine. And so I think it's because originally the Rust team was going to use differential data flow for their borrow checker, but ended up backing out of it and use, they ended up using this embeddable data log engine in Rust. And because Rust is pretty compatible with C as like a foreign function interface, it can kind of mimic that. It should be portable across a lot of different languages. So that might be an interesting project to just kind of glue it together so that you have many different wrappers for different languages on top of this embeddable data log engine written in Rust, which is called data frog for lack of a better <laughs> name, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that would be interesting. I, yeah, I think that, you know, one of the one of the reasons why people don't use data log is that you're not going to write your entire company's code base in, in a language like data log. Well, first yeah. of all, you can't. But you know, so it, it would be nice to kind of dip your toes in when you need, and then kind of back out to something more general purpose uh, as needed. Yeah. It, as an aside, I, I really wish that languages had this like inter interconnectedness or functionality where you can escape out and because a lot of languages let you escape out into the other language languages like for example like i think c and rust lets you mm -hmm. write a little bit of assembly when you want to and so yeah like yeah it'd be nice but i i, I can see why that's like a pain in the ass it's it's not glamorous no 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 it's yeah. not it's possible we we discussed this at length oh, with the web assembly ass. right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it can happen have hope <laughs> I, I yeah have hope right right it's through the package modules and stuff like that okay so i take yeah. it back we 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 are living in the future in this podcast so th <laughs> this will definitely happen so uh, yeah. Moving out from there, like what, what sort of things have you seen people use the data log for? And so the thing I mentioned was that the Rust team was using it for their borrow checker. <laughs> and you mentioned that you've used it for very domain specific things, but have you seen other people like playing out? Like where's this resurgence that we're talking about? Yeah, I think in, in our kind of pre-research both you and I ended up watching this talk. It's a very famous talk at this conference called Strange Loop by this researcher, Peter Alvaro, who, who was basically describing a data log variant that he had used to model distributed systems. And so 
one of the, the, there are many, many complicated things about distributed systems, but basically what makes them tricky is that you don't have a shared sense of state or time across computers that are trying to coordinate with each other across the network. And so you have things like network delays or inconsistency. So if one computer is trying to send a message to another, it might send multiple copies of that message, or the message might never ever be received, or many things like this. Computers can crash. And so it's very, very complicated. Yeah, yeah. As a, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, just add on to the, the assumptions that you have programming, programming on a single computer is just not the, they all go out the window when you have more than one across a network. And I think we're still trying to get used to the idea because like there's an, an, an implicit assumption that when you write a line of code that, and then you write the next line of code that the second line of code will happen entirely after the first line of code. And in distributed programming, mm -hmm. that is not the case at all. And like you were saying, like when you, execute something it can and send a message to a remote computer like it can never get there it can get there once it can get there more than once it can get mm -hmm. there backwards in time because the clocks might not be synced up and all these yeah. weird oddities can happen which which make it really complicated and i've heard yeah. equipped that Web programmers, all web programmers are distributed programmers, but we just don't know it yet. <laughs> so, so that's, yeah, that's yeah. why like, we, we build all these crappy systems that power the world's <laughs> like commerce and whatnot right now. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, it's, re it's really, really easy when you're working in a distributed environment to basically like shoot yourself in the foot, like, like we'd said, because if you do you know, silly things like you know, retry sending messages willy-nilly or make some assumptions about the fact that the, your recipient will definitely get your message exactly once or, or something like that, then your logic is going to be like unsound and the results of your system are going to be indeterminate. They're going to be non-deterministic depending on how your system is initialized and, and the various uh, network conditions, you're not going to be able to predict with any uh, accuracy what's going to happen if you actually run this, this protocol amongst these, amongst these computers. And so the, going back to the talk, I think... Oh, right. Um, and so I wanted to mention the, the, the title of the talk, which is I See What You Mean uh, with Peter Alvaro. And uh, this is a talk that I've watched over and over again. It's that good. I, I guess like, it's one of the <laughs> few. And the thing is, I think it's because every time I've watched it, I've gotten something different out of it. And, and uh, yeah, so, so I would encourage everybody that's listening to go check it out. It's a strange loop talk from 2015 and which, yeah. Yeah, I, I think some of the ideas is is still in the works, I guess. But anyways, you were saying going back to the talk. Oh yeah, I mean, I think the the how it pertains to data log is that you know uh, Peter Alvaro was working on this language called Daedalus, which is a variant of data log, and then I think there was a variant of this Daedalus called Bloom. But basically, these are these data log inspired languages, which also model 
the distributed nature of distributed systems. So they model time, sort of relativistic time rather than absolute time. Mm-hmm. And so basically it's a, it's a variant of data log that is aware of the, the sort of intricacies of distributed systems. And what you can do if you're designing a distributed system is that you can pass this language facts about the world, like you, you, one computer is trying to send a message this to another, and uh, you can model uh, various things like this, and you can pass it to the solver, and it will basically output the series of events that will that will occur, because it has a a very sound way of modeling distributed systems and and state and things like this. And so rather than sort of having to work it out all yourself or not work it out yourself and just do things willy-nilly, you can basically build, uh, use Daedalus as a uh, building block to kind of solve this sort of constrained distributed systems problem. Yeah, because like what I found really interesting about Bloom and Daedalus is that they make time explicit like they, they reify time. Because like I said earlier about programming single, single computers is that there's an implicit time component to it that first one, one thing, one line executes and then another line of code executes. There's an implicit aspect of time, but in Daedalus and uh, in Bloom, you, you have to explicitly put in a time component. They, they make it explicit so that that way you, you are able to talk about it as a first class member in the language, right? And mm-hmm. so that was one thing that was pretty interesting. And, and I guess the other is that when you talk about events, just to make it concrete, like when you have multiple computers connected across a network, they don't know what the other one knows. So you have to send messages to the other one. And because of that, and because the network is unreliable in all sorts of different ways that uh, I think our listeners are familiar with, like it, it is a, a problem for programming. And so what Bloom allows you to do is you set up the conditions of the protocol or like whatever you're trying to achieve through the coordination of these computers, but you want to make it in a way where even though the network is unreliable and even though packages and messages can get garbled sent not sent or sent to the past because the clocks are synced or whatever that you can still wrangle that into a behavior for the entire system where it it achieves that coordination that you're looking for yeah definitely i think you know to make it concrete some of the the distributed systems protocols that our listeners might know about or at least have definitely interacted with are our consensus protocols like Paxos and Raft. These are- For for our listeners, like these exist inside of Kubernetes, for example. So that's like, you don't Mm -hmm. mess with it directly, but Kubernetes has to have a way of coordinating and getting consensus for their various different nodes. And I think pods- that are like holding your various containers and they're doing it through like Paxos and Raft, which are consensus algorithms that we're talking about here. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and almost every, you know, database that has a distributed component as well uses some variant of, of these mm -hmm. algorithms. Basically, a common use case is that you are, you have a master or a leader among a, a set of distributed um, computers. And that is the, you know, it, it's a leader because it's a source of truth or, or, or it has some significance. And, and so what happens when that leader crashes, you need to basically elect another leader and you have to do this without any single source of truth because each of these computers is, you know, running it on its own timeline and uh, has its own view of events. And so Paxis and Raft are, are one way to solve, uh, for example, that type of problem. And so basically, these types of protocols are very, very well vetted, and they have a sound mathematical and theoretical guarantees that allow them to be used with confidence in all of these very production critical systems. And now, it's it's very hard for if you. If you're not using Paxos and Raft, but you find yourself in a similar situation where you need to come up with a protocol like this, you probably don't have too many tools at hand in order to solve this because it's uh, you know you're probably not a CS theory researcher. But I imagine that if you use a tool like a Daedalus or Bloom, at least for small versions of these types of problems, you it, it might help you have greater confidence in the protocol that you designed. So maybe you're not building a, a core fundamental algorithm like Paxos and Raft, but maybe you have a, a small distributed protocol that's running in your application layer. And if you want to vet it, then you might want to use data log inspired language to help you sort of model uh, model the, the problem and, and come to a, a solution. Yeah, half of it is also realizing that that's the problem that you have because a lot of these sort of either graph search or like constraint satisfaction problems are hiding in plain sight. And on the surface, they just kind of look like a, they don't look like anything that you would see in the code interviews or anything like that, where they make it really explicit that this is a graph search sort of thing, right? And, and so right. half of it is just recognizing that it's the case. Like for, at least for me, this was not a, a constraint. It was just a graph search problem. I had to do a currency conversion between different cryptocurrency values to USD. And I thought it was just a bunch of multiplications. I could knock it out in an hour, but it turned out to be a graph search problem. And I was like, oh, okay, this, this, this is a little bit more involved. And yeah. yeah and, and so half of it is just recognizing that that's the case and you employ the right tool for it when 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 it's needed mm -hmm. yeah yeah definitely and, and then so i guess uh, did you have anything to add with like bloom and stuff like that oh i, I guess one thing that i was wondering about is uh, elixir and erlang are languages that are de designed specifically for distributed systems like they they don't really have like a data log or data i know there's a data log plugin or like a library, but like, I don't hear a lot of people talking about it in that world. Like, do you know anything about like how they think about data log? No, I, I, I don't, but it does seem like it's something 
that would go hand in hand because I've written a little bit of Erlang. I haven't written too much Elixir, but the way that they think about distributed systems or concurrent uh, programming is, is very interesting because in, in Erlang, basically you have these actors and they receive messages and in response to messages, they do something and then send other uh, things messages. And right. so it makes sense that actually you could, you could use something like Bloom to either directly program the actors or at least be able to generate some guarantees on the behaviors of these actors. Yeah. And I think that would, that's kind of fruitful it, it, uh, area of research. It, it would seem like it would be a meta language. Like instead of coordinating all the different actors yourself, you write a declarative language that then generates the actors and the messages that they need to do yeah. to, to, to get the effect that you want. That, that, I, I, I'm not in that world. So maybe it's already been done. Maybe our listeners can tell us, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I would think that would be pretty interesting. And then I, I guess I was going to move on to the other resurgences that we've seen for data log. One of the interesting ones in, I guess this was six or six years ago by now, but uh, Chris Granger is a programmer that wanted to change how programming was done and tried to rethink a lot of the things that we were doing in programming. And he came up with the IDE light table first, and then eventually changed it into the programming language in IDE called Eve. And you can find the remnants of it at witheve.com. And so since then he's moved on because I think the project has failed, but I think there have been a lot of interesting ideas in Eve itself. And one of the things that I didn't realize about Eve was that it was actually data log inspired language. So Smalltalk is an old object oriented language and it's object oriented in the sense that no other object oriented language is. Like, it's not just that everything is an as an object, it's like your IDE, your entire environment is object oriented. You are literally bathed in objects in, in that environment. <laughs> and, and so that means that you can query anything and everything about what's going on in your program in Smalltalk. And then similarly, Eve doesn't use objects, but it models everything as a record. At like a, a record in a database. And so in data log terms, everything is a fact. And so everything about the data that your program is using is a fact, but not just that, your program itself is a series of facts inside their data log engine. So that also means that whatever your program is doing in terms of memory usage, number of HTTP requests and so on and so forth, is a fact in the database system. If you want to send an email, like if you want to perform side effects, you write a new fact in the data log database that you're sending an email or you have sent one, and then the underlying runtime will just send that thing for you. And so that means that you can use the data log query engine to query anything about Eve itself, your program, 
and the current running program and all of that is available and that results in really powerful debugging tools and so that was the the main thing that i found really interesting about it yeah i was a, a big fan of eve in that i just like was watching it as a spectator i never really you know participated in the community or anything but it was a very very radical idea at the time i actually think that now the idea isn't quite as radical or foreign, although the vision is still uh, actually very powerful. So I, the reason why I think this is that the idea behind modeling everything as a record in Eve is that you could use this data log engine or data log-like language in order to basically derive everything kind of deterministically from that set of facts. But it's, this isn't too different than the model that web programmers are used to right now of if you use React, you oftentimes are using a, a state engine like Redux and from which you are basically deriving your entire UI stage and we did the whole Re React reconciler and things like this. Right. And so it's not too crazy, you know, crazy of an idea. And it actually, it turns out to be a very, very good Thing to do when you're rendering a UI because we talked about in that episode if you do this all in a procedural way then you might you could do it wrong and you get all this like inconsistent state whereas if you basically derive something from source of truth and then from that lay out your entire UI you actually end up getting a, a much better model of, of UI programming now Eve took it even further, that, that was definitely actually a component of Eve where you could render a UI given the, the records in its a database. But like you mentioned, it took it even further by modeling side effects that way as well. So if you click something, that click would basically either update or, or input a record into the, into the database and uh, that could be used to update some state you could, if you wanted to send an email or send a network request, you put a record onto presumably some kind of queue, and then the engine would take care of making that network request. If you squint, and I don't know how much squinting this is, like, you know, it, it, it kind of sounds like the, the hooks and the use effect and things, like, it's not too crazy of an idea, given where we are now. Like, yeah, like it, it, it was kind of crazy back then, but like you know, maybe maybe we're open to it now. Right, which I'm super tickled by because I honestly was thinking along the same lines as well, but I I don't think I fully expressed it as well because like if you squint a little bit and look at the React state management libraries, like people are like React itself. I think people have kind of figured it out that okay, this is a good model, but like when it comes to the state libraries, like people are still kind of fishing about for like what actually works. So like popular ones are like Redux and Mobex and so on and so forth. And one of the things that was interesting was there's yet another Facebook state management library called uh, Recoil and it's still relatively alpha. <laughs> and one of the problems they're trying to solve is the problem of re-renders because if you have uh, sibling components that are operating on the same piece of data, then the usual advice is that you pull that common state up to the parent 
and then have it live there. But then if that's the case, you get this massive re-render for all the children, whether they use that, that thing or not. And so what they proposed was, okay, we'll create a separate data hierarchy from the view hierarchy. Because I think one of the fundamental assumptions of React is that your data hierarchy, your view hierarchy is going to look like your data hierarchy because that's what you're getting a view of. But as it turns out that that's not always the case. Like for example, in Figma, which is a design tool, you might be operating on a rectangle, but there are three different representations of it. Like one in the main screen where you're operating, moving that rectangle around on the canvas, there's like a left bar showing you where in the component hierarchy it is. And so that needs to be represented there. And as well as the properties of that rectangle like its attributes, like what its size and width are and so on and so forth. And so all these three things will need to change when aspects of the rectangle changes, right? And so mm -hmm. that's a very intuitive application view of, of the data where the view doesn't really quite match up to the shape of the data. And so what they suggested was, okay, we're, we'll just create a separate data hierarchy with a, a specific way to query it that doesn't match the view. So it's independent. And then, so you won't get this re-render sort of thing. And when I saw that, huh. I was like, oh, like if you squint, that kind of looks like, like you need data log here, <laughs> like some sort of like, query engine for that. And so that's why it tickles me so much that that you, you also <laughs> kind of came to this conclusion, I guess, independent of, of me and also like on the fly <laughs> in a podcast. So kudos yeah, to you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, think, I think that, you know, there are, there are a lot of similarities. And I think, yeah, as we talked about in the, in the episode uh, with the reconciler, the the hooks API of React looks like regular JavaScript, but it's basically a, what we have been talking about in Daylog as a kind of expansion rule in okay. that it doesn't get executed in the way that normal JavaScript executes. It basically sets up a set of rules that, you know, given this input and the state and, uh, or this click event, here is how to reproduce the UI, right? And so if you, it's very, very declarative in that way. And so it almost seems to match 100% a, uh, a data log rule. And then maybe if you use recoil and you have a whole data store that is independent of the application state, now that's kind of like the records in Eve. Uh, and obviously Eve takes this further in the small talk way because the whole, the whole basically programming environment is modeled all the way down in this in this way, and it allows you to do things like inspect the state of the world that you're running in, and all of these interesting things that you can do in Smalltalk. But you know, at least maybe the combination of recoil and hooks like takes you I don't know eighty percent of the way there to what what Eve was doing. Yeah, and and so that can be exciting because one of the things about Eve is that it has an inference engine built in, and then so in terms of debugging you can ask questions about like why this piece of information I'm seeing on the view is wrong. And so you would be able to not just get a stack trace of like 
whether it aired out or not, like you can get it there to say, okay, like what, what's the provenance of this piece of data? Like what are all the pieces of code that touch data that ended up being this piece of data that I'm seeing that's wrong on the web page right now? And so you can ask questions of it like that, which you can't do with a lot of the imperative and even functional like languages that build web pages nowadays, because it's the environment and the tools are just not there for that, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think that type of inspectability is, you know, it's getting better in, uh, on the web, but I think that's it's getting better because of, you know, browser vendors making their uh, inspector tools better and better. But I think that the idea in Eve was that it was exposed, the fundamentals and the primitives were exposed such that you didn't need to wait for anybody's permission in order to have this kind of powerful inspector tools. You could build them yourself by directly inspecting the system that you're working on, which is a very, again, small talk way of looking at uh, your programming environment. Yeah, yeah. And and I think the, the other aspect of using data log as a basis for your new language that was also conducive to Eve was that it fashioned itself as a notebook. And for those of you that have used like Jupyter notebooks, you know, one of the most frustrating things is that you execute different blocks of code in different orders and somehow like the state got out of whack so that like the variable that did exist in this block doesn't exist anymore because you reran some other block further up and you have to like keep this hidden state in mind. And so most people just kind of blow away the state and then rerun everything from the top again, because you know, there's, it's not worth it to kind of figure it out, but then you do eat up a lot of time just running through, especially if they're computationally heavy. And so this is where people are on their chair sword fighting because they're compiling via the XKCD comic, right? And, and so yeah. I, I think there's been some improvement to this for like the newer look, notebooks, like observable, they, they have a DAG of the different blocks where you know they know which one will influence the other one. So they only update the ones that really matter. But one of the, going back to Eve, they just did away with this dependency altogether because in data log, if you write a set of facts and the rules, these facts are not spatially related to each other. And so that means you can write it in any order, right? And then so <laughs> Eve is set up like a notebook so that you can write prose that explains your code, but your code can be in any order and it could be in the service of explaining your code rather than in service of running the code, which is what, what they aspire to do. But mm -hmm. I, I think sadly, at the end of the day, I, I don't think it got a lot of pickup. People were excited about it, but I thought like there wasn't a lot of pickup on it. I think because one of the things that I don't think their team did really well was just explaining the programming model behind it. Cause I like without that background on data log and the cycle of you have a set of facts and some rules and everything is a record. Like I couldn't really figure out how to get from the list of commands to whatever I wanted to do 
right? Like whatever task yeah. that I set out to do because I had no mental model for it. And so maybe other people found it a little bit easier, but I definitely thought it was difficult. But then from Chris himself, you know, one of the much later interviews, like he said, well, it was tough because like, I think Eve itself only had like three basic operators. I think search, mm -hmm. commit, and what's the other ones? I don't know. Search, commit, and bind, right? And, and so it, it makes sense if you understand everything is a record because search is like a query, you search for the record and commit is like you write the new fact, like whatever you're yeah. like committing. And then bind is like binding to like whatever view, like you're, you're inserting the value in a template of some sort. And so that's like, like a bind of, of some sort, right? Yeah. But just trying to build everything from those three primitives got to be a little bit onerous. And so it was, even though it has a very good foundation, I don't think they kind of were able to keep building abstractions on top of that to make everything easy because they always had to go back to the search commit bind. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think at some point you're going to want to do things beyond this like uh, a constrained uh, way like we we sort of opened in this in, uh, at the top of the episode i think it's very very nice when you use a constrained language when the the problem lends itself to that yeah. then it gets frustrating really fast when you want to do anything else outside of that right. and so yeah maybe they ran into that sort of that duality yeah yeah yeah, so so I guess that's that's really all I have to say about Eve at this moment. And Chris has moved on to other things. He's worked at different companies, and he's back to working on his own stuff, trying to reinvent programming as well. And so the some of the stuff is is kind of cool, but but that's a, another topic for another day. So, but yeah, so so then one of the things that we mentioned. Uh, early in the podcast was about Datomic and the closure community. Like, did, did you have uh, specifics about that, that that you wanted to talk about? No, I mean, I think, um, you know, in our, in our sort of dry run of this episode, I, I liked some of your insights into it. I am just a pure observer, a spectator of, of this kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, I didn't really get a chance to like, fully understand like what makes programming with a, a database like Datomic really fundamentally different. But I think you had some thoughts on this. Uh, yeah. The, so uh, just as a caveat, I also haven't really used it in depth as well. Like I only know what I know from reading and playing around with really simple toy examples. But uh, I think the main gist and takeaway that I thought was really interesting is that in Datomic, you can use the database as a value. And so that's a short, there's a lot of things to unpack in there. So we'll just kind of go through it for a little bit. In functional programming, I think one of the things that people in that community recognize is that programming is hard due to state. Like the state is the maintaining state is the root of a lot of the complexity that occurs in our program. Like whether it's 
putting in caches, whether it's just database records and so on and so forth. And so as a result, the datomic guys kind of went back to the drawing board and thought about the database. And what they realized and coined a phrase for was that in a lot of mainstream programming languages, we do what they call place-oriented programming in which we go somewhere and we ask for a value and then we get it back. And we confuse the value that we get back with the place that we got it from. And so an example is like, we have a variable, like a shared variable in a shared memory or something like that. We go and check that variable but then we can't assume that when we read it, it will still be the same because somebody else might've written it, right? And then because there's no guarantee in a place oriented, like where you go to a place that what you got from the place, the value you got from the place will be the same state of the world as when you're ready to act on that value. And so you might have outdated information. And so in functional programming, they said, okay, that doesn't make sense. We need to do away with that because that's an artifact of how resource constrained, memory constrained and disk constrained computers were when we first invented them way back when. Like the only reason that we have memory and we overwrite it in a variable was because like you only had like 16 or 32K way back when, right? But nowadays, right. we're not resource constrained like that at all. Like we are by far like not like we have more than what we know what to do with, in a sense. Some people would argue differently because there's always the, the common complaint, you know, like why are computers still freaking slow with like the slow boot up times? And we have like these massive supercomputers compared to like a Macintosh. I, that's a different topic for a different day. But it, in general, like... Yeah. When it comes to updating data in place, it doesn't quite make sense. Like what makes more sense is that we separate the idea of a place from its value. And so when we say what, it, when we have a record that records who is the president, right? Instead of overwriting George Bush with uh, Barack Obama, we should have a separate record that says the next president is Barack Obama. There should be two records because just because Barack Obama is president now doesn't negate the fact yeah. that George Bush was president before. And a lot yeah. of what we use computers for are like information decision machines. And it's hard to make decisions if you can't compare the current value to a previous value. And so it, what makes actual more sense in the computing environment we have today is that we have an immutable fact. Like once it happens, it has happened. So it will never change because we can't go and go back in time. And so you have this growing set of facts, just like you have a growing list of presidents that have been presidents. And mm. so this matches, matches really well with the fact that a data log is a set of facts. You can have inferences to grow a new set of facts and it's an ever expanding, expanding set of facts as things happen to it, to the system in the world. And so 
Yeah. Uh, what that lets you do is that you can take the database as a value instead of a place. So like, just like George W. Bush was always a president, just like 42 is always the value 42, you can take a subset of that set of facts and ship it over to the client. And then the client can, mm -hmm. can treat it as an immutable value that it can then do operations on, whether it's filtering or whatnot. And so the advantage yeah. of having a value is that you don't need coordination with anybody else in order to do stuff with it because it's not a place that you go to to fetch a value that then the, the value would change out from under you. Like once you get it, yeah. it's yours. And so all the problems with di distributed programming now goes away because now you have that value in your hand. Like 42 is always going to be 42. And so what can you do with it? You can run it through functions. You can query it. You can do anything. You can send it. I, I can send it to you. Like I can send that subset mm -hmm. of the database to you. And I don't have to worry about with like what anybody else is doing with it because it's immutable. It will always be the case, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, this makes sense, actually. So it, it didn't click immediately to me, but I actually have a couple of, of thoughts about this. Yeah. One is that there is a case that I felt this database is a value feeling before, and I haven't used Atomic, but the first time I got this feeling was when I used uh a service that many of our, our viewers might be familiar with called Firebase. Uh -huh. And um, Firebase in their initial offering, they've expanded now under uh, uh, their Google acquisition, but the initial core offering that they provided was a type of distributed real-time synced object. Yeah. It was basically just a, a JavaScript map that you could you could mutate and when you mutated it it would sync to their central server and then that those syncs would then get sent down to all the clients mm -hmm. but what was interesting about it and what actually people really loved about it was the fact that it didn't feel like a place in that at that time it was very popular to use a database like mongo which yeah. had this this model where you are making a connection to the database you're issuing a query issuing a write or whatever, it felt like when you were using Firebase, you had an object on your local client, you were doing some stuff with it, and then whatever you were doing was getting synced and whatever was happening in the outside world was getting sent. You had a view of that in your, in your local client. Now, I think there, uh, there are some differences here in that Datomic does this a little bit more rigorously in that they have this idea of immutability or, or rather you can have a, a snapshot of that object at a mm -hmm. given time and it doesn't matter if it's changed since then because basically it's aggregating those updates rather right. than completely overriding them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that makes it a little bit more powerful, but I think it, this, this isn't all that much of a foreign concept now that I think about it if you've used something like Firebase. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the the feeling, the the feeling is much different. Like it's not like you feel like you're going somewhere else and getting something. You have something in which you operate on it and like you get that spooky distant action at a distance because like you basically 
delegated those side effects to the runtime. And, yeah. and so you just operate on like the pieces, the data that you want, and then the sync is taken care of and you just use whatever you have. And then anything new that comes in, like Firebase, I think the sync goes the other way too, right? Does it or no? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's bi-directional. Yeah. And so I imagine there's some sort of like eventing system that notifies you of new things that come in and then your system handles it with however it's like mm -hmm. state management handles it, whether it's Redux or something else. Right. So like when new stuff comes yes, in, yes. you figure out how to, to, to handle that. And so, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the idea. And I think it lines up pretty well with the local first episode that we were talking about before, where we want to be able to split up the program with the data so that like they can operate more independently of each other. And the sync problem is, it's not an easy problem when you sit down to like really think about it. But I think now we have some of the tools that make a lot of sense, like from the low level CRDT stuff of like how to get stuff across. Obviously there's still problems with the network, punching through firewalls, P2P, that sort of stuff that that's as an aside, if any of you building this sort of stuff, like you can look at IPFS, they they publish a lib P2P, which you can use to like punch through firewalls and stuff like that. That's that's a library you can use. But like, so we have the low level stuff, the CRDTs on top, as well as kind of this higher level declarative language to operate on data as it's being synced in the background. I, I think like the, all the pieces are there for something really interesting as a tool. And it seems like a lot of people miss Firebase as it was. And, and yeah. so that, that might be an opportunity for you guys out there. And so I think half the time when we talk about things, we're like, oh my God, this is such an exciting thing. Maybe we should go build it. And inevitably we're like, <laughs> we have another podcast to do. Yeah, we're too busy making podcasts to actually right. do things in the world, but uh, maybe <laughs> right. some of you listeners can, can go do this. Right. And, and so along with Datomic, there's a JavaScript library called Datascript that is compatible with Datomic. And the author of Datascript writes a lot of blog posts, and some of which are targeted towards this thought of this kind of offline web or like this partial where you can take partial views of data locally and uh, you should check it out and so the author of datascript is nikita tonsky and he wrote two articles which i thought were pretty insightful which is the web after tomorrow and software disenchantment and I encourage you guys to go look at it. It's a couple of years old by now. And so I think it's, I don't, I don't know that we're moving there, but maybe slowly. So all the pieces are there, check it out. It, it kind of talks about some of the things that, that we're talking about here. Yeah, so, yeah it's definitely yeah. a cool, uh, cool little niche. A lot, a lot of people are very committed to this idea. Obviously very, very heavyweight, like intellectual energy uh, is powering, you know, Datomic and, and the closure community. So yeah, I think like, if you want a little glimpse of the future, like as we do, and if you're listening to this podcast, yeah, definitely do go check that out. Yeah. And if you're like, so down on crypto that you need some other, like some other place with intellectual, because <laughs> crypto does have a lot of like technically hard stuff uh, underneath, but if you're opposed to that for any number of reasons, I encourage you to go look at this stuff instead.
Yeah. So then what about the second and third order effects? Like, let's say the things that are available to Firebase are like widely available and people are used to the idea. Like what sort of things like would would occur? Like what, or like maybe like what other application, also what other applications could you use this for that we currently aren't seeing, but it seems like a good fit? Yeah, I, I think that, as we were taking this tour through the data log and its friends in uh, its various incarnations, my mind went back to our, our favorite villain in this podcast, the Jamstack uh, <laughs> and serverless. Like, I think this, this, this guy you know, crops up every once in a while and we always say, yeah, how, how shitty it is. But, you know, I, we've, we've brought up this idea a couple of times of the fact that if you're doing the serverless serverless computing, what's really lacking is that, I don't know, it's just all, it's all just a, a variety of disparate functions that you're writing, like individual little Lambda functions. There's no real framework or mental model of how you're going to tie this together. And so maybe it's fine if you're building a very small web app, but as soon as you're building a very, very complex you know, system of you know something reacting to an event queue, something sending emails, something having side effects, all of the stuff, what you're quickly going to need is a framework or coordination layer. Now, what's interesting about data log and logic programming is that it kind of lends itself to this this kind of sort of unstructured environment in in the same way that Eve models it in that you basically you don't have to worry about how things are getting done you don't have to worry about you know the exact mechanics of things basically if you write uh, a series of rules in response to this fact this thing must be true like if i get this this type of http request then i will send this email and you sort of all model this in this data log way then maybe you can just write serverless programs that work by the fact that data log works. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a, the, the feel when you get, like I did a tiny, tiny bit of like serverless programming. It just feels really um, laborious. I think part of it is the round time to the remote servers to like deploy or run things, but also that the unit of computation that you're using functions like normally on your local machine because it's so fast it's 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 good right but when you can only use like a tiny bit of code with that kind of round trip it just starts feeling bad and laborious and so that's that's part of the issue that these the tools aren't great and so i think what you're saying is well if we have that latency built in then why don't we have a meta language that, that like I can write that declarative language, then it creates all the functions for me and then deploys it. And it can like bring them up or down. Like I don't have to keep track of like which functions are running. So I waste a lot of money, which is very common for like serverless. Like people have stories where like they have 50, 60 functions of different versions of stuff. And they're like, I don't know which one I need because I lost track of it. Like I don't, 
right? And like, I'm wasting yeah. money and maybe it's okay because it's my company's money, but like, I, it's, it's not the greatest thing to, to be running around doing like, just, it's not cost-effective, I guess, compared to regular programming. And so if you have like a coordination language on top of it, like maybe that makes it actually viable to solve more complex problems. Because like for something like a background job where you send an email that's like independent, maybe has to like query the database. That's like one single source. That's fine. But when you yeah. have jobs or some sort of like uh, chained jobs that have to happen and maybe they fork and whatnot that gets complicated really quickly and maybe you should be using an etl pipeline of some sort instead um yeah yeah like that the, maybe maybe that's the case and i do see this precedence also actually in uh, some of the etl pipeline like the the streaming frameworks like apache spark like you can yeah. write individual functions and nodes and chain them up together in a directed acyclical graph for your like ETL pipeline computation. But they also have an SQL that kind of generates these nodes for you so that you don't have to do the low level sort of things, right? Yeah. It, it, it's kind of like when MapReduce came out, it was like really cool, but then people found it really hard to convert all of their queries into just these two basic primitives so people like keep like other stuff on top of them i think hive or something like that i don't know mm -hmm. i'm, I'm mm -hmm. not in the yeah. world really but but uh, but yeah like so i do see a presence for that and so maybe the same thing will come to pass with serverless where you have this kind of declarative coordination on top yeah definitely i think yeah there's definitely the the frustrating you know, interacting with the with the this like remote providers and, and things, and obviously the cost. There's also just the correctness aspect. So right now, in a, in a serverless computing environment, you can basically do anything, and there's no guarantee that the right thing will happen. So you know, yeah, you're right. So in response to your request, if you send an email, and it's fairly unlikely that too many things will go wrong. But like you can imagine that, it, in fact, what let's say that you have a scenario where somebody is trying to log into your service. So on Slack, you can say, send me a magic link to my email. And so what happens is that you make a request to Slack, Slack sends you some kind of email. And, and then when you click that link, then it updates some you know, signed in state or gives you some you know, session cookie or something. And then that makes you magically log into Slack. And now this is now not just one event that's happening, it's sort of you do something, Slack does something, you do something, Slack does something, and it's updating you know, a database or it's updating an authentication layer and many, many things are happening. Now imagine you're trying to do this in serverless, you could have these functions all independently doing the right thing and maybe you can even unit test them and, and make sure that each of them individually is doing the right thing. But how do you know it in the end it's actually gonna do the thing that you think it's gonna do? It, it's it's sort of you can sort of trust it or you can say i'm going to use a declarative language that for the same reasons you might use blue right like yeah. uh, you you recognize that you need a solver or a engine that provides you some type of coordination some type of guarantees so that you have confidence okay if all these things happen then this is the outcome that will happen yeah 
Yeah, so that seems to be a fruitful direction to go. Um, like, I, I don't have anything else to add to that. I was going to move on to something else, but, but like, do yeah. you, I guess you had the last word, and since I don't have any last words, <laughs> um, the, the one other thing, I guess we, we always move to games, but maybe because I pay attention to the space, one of the things that I was thinking about was for systemic games but like it's one of those things where like maybe i'm over applying it but maybe you can tell me like what you think what's a systemic game yeah so a systemic game is a game in which the designers purposely put together the individual parts but the effect of these individual parts is greater than what they intended and so a good example is uh, Zelda uh, Breath of the Wild on the Nintendo Switch. And one of the things that was very good about the game is that Zelda went back to their roots. The original inspiration for Legend of Zelda, the, the Nintendo version, was when the guy as a kid was wandering through his backyard you know, he had a huge backyard. And so there was forests and caves that he could explore. And so kind of that sense of exploration and wonder. And so in order to induce that kind of uh, feeling in the player, you need to have more of an open world in which you can go anywhere, do anything, experiment with stuff. But those kind of games are often harder to design. If any of you have ever played the really old text adventure games where like you describe like where you are, like like Zork, I think is the first one. And then you have to type yeah. like, pick up Axe. And then it just tells you, you can't pick up Axe because like the designer didn't intend anybody to do that. So it becomes really frustrating. Those kinds of games are hard to design. Systemic games are in which like you have various elements and they take into consideration that there's a giant matrix of interactions that you can do mm-hmm to have an effect and those compose together. And so they may not have to name every effect, but they name the rules of which like these things interact with each other. Oh, well, no, so, so I think, you know, our super fans will recall that in the React Reconciler episode, we did touch upon a systemic game, uh, Dwarf Fortress. Right. I, think, I, I think it would it count under this where it has many, many different systems and subsystems that model things like cats walking around and alcohol poisoning. And we told the funny story about the interaction between these two, but yeah, I mean, I think that, yes, I, I see what you mean. Uh-huh, that's a throwback game. to so, this current episode. That's right. Self-reference <laughs> is inception. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Yeah. And so I think in Nintendo usually doesn't give talks about their methods and methodology. They're really secretive about like how they design games with good reason. I mean, they do have a secret sauce, but in one of the GDC talks, it, they talk about like how they thought about it. Uh, one was the, that games have a physics engine in which they they simulate like what happens when there's an input and output for different physical things. But for like the systemic parts of Breath of the Wild, they came up with a chemistry engine. But like a physics engine, it's kind of like, a, it's not real physics. It's like physics to be believable enough in a game. It's the same with the chemistry engine. And a lot of it is just like, what happens when 
you take two things that are made out of different materials and you do put them together, right? What are the rules mm -hmm. for that? And so like, I think basic rules are like, there's a material and like some sort of effect like fire. So you have wood and fire, wind, water, or something like that. And so when you combine them together, what are the effects? And so yeah. they would like write these rules out. And so that then when a player happens upon like an org campsite or anything like that, they can have any number of possibilities for them to problem solve. They can e like try to, try to light their arrow on fire and shoot the barrel of explosives next to the campsite <laughs> to blow it up. They can, they can like use magnetism or electricity to like shoot a metal box towards a boulder that then rolls down and kills the campsite and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And so a lot of these things are, are as a result of this like uh, chemistry engine. And so I'm pretty sure they did not use data log because they didn't mention anything about it. But I really do wonder if like a data log engine would be a really good fit here for these type of systemic games. So, okay, so yeah. let me try to connect a few dots here. So what I hear you saying is a systemic game has these different systems, maybe chemistry system, physics system, whatever, biology, et yeah. cetera, et cetera that have a, a set of rules by which they operate. Yeah. And you have basically sets of facts about the world. So you say that here's an arrow, arrow is made out of wood, Right. blah, 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 blah. You can light it on fire, right. So it's therefore you want to light it on fire. So that your end goal is that you want to have a realistic model of the world so that you, if something is made out of wood, you can light it on fire. Mm -hmm. And ideally what you want is that anything made of wood can be lit on fire whether or not the programmers explicitly, you know, went through all the, the, the objects in the world and said, this thing is you know, able to light on fire, this thing is yeah. able to light on fire. Right, right, so right. you kind of want to make these inferences in the way that we were talking about with data blog, where ideally you throw a bunch of facts about the world and you throw a bunch of rules that the game designers have designed. Yeah. And then from there, you kind of get these emergent scenarios that emerge from the set of facts right. and the rules. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's exactly it. And so, like, maybe, but like, I, I don't yeah. write games. I, I don't know a lot of people that do. I only just kind of follow it. And so it's it's one of those patterns that that I recognize. And so I, I really do wonder, so if there are any game developers out, out there, try it out. Like, I, have, I have some more crazy ideas to go on this, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that in the metaverse, <laughs> if a metaverse is to be truly, truly interesting. Yeah. I think that it cannot be top-down designed in that there is a game studio or something that says these are all the objects that exist in this metaverse. Yeah. And these are the properties that they, they will have. And here's how you can interact with uh -huh. them. I think for it to be fundamentally interesting, just like in the real world, you should be able to take the primitives of the world and as an end user, be able to combine them in interesting ways. So you can take raw materials and craft things. You can invent things that didn't exist before. And so I think that it's possible that in the metaverse, you're going to have to introduce some type of end user program. Now, and also make use of these emergent effects. Now, <clears throat> how would you do this? Because in the metaverse, again, this is an open world. It's ideally open to anyone to participate. How can you make it so that people can specify the behaviors 
of new objects that they've introduced? How can they imbue objects in this world with magic? Well, a good way to do this would be to constrain what they can do and not just say, here, like write a JavaScript function for what this like object can do, yeah. but rather say, maybe write a, a data log rule that says that, you know, given the properties that this object has, it can now do this thing. And so maybe by the fact that it's declarative and has some constraints on it, now you don't have to worry about people injecting completely random code that behaves in completely huh. unpredictable ways. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. It's kind of like if you set the base layer of facts, like they can never be taken away because like facts in data log can only be appended upon. You can't, I don't think you can take away facts. And so <laughs> as a result, like you can have the basic workings of the physics well, of the chemistry of the world, like how different materials interact with each other. And then everything else that the player might have, they're just, they just say whether it's flammable, whether it's uh, wettable, I guess, in other, the ebbles that, that people use mm-hmm. in inheritance or like, yeah. And, and so then instead of like giving people Lua to, explicitly program some of these things then you can just name properties that something has and then you get all that other stuff for free yeah i think so so i think declarative programming is a good way to allow if you have a multi-user environment people to kind of write their own logic without having to worry about the whole world coming crashing down and so yeah maybe maybe it's a, a use there but yeah i mean the Interesting part about having properties that are imbuable, like how you might do this, reminds me of a crypto project called the Loot Project. And Hmm. they are NFTs in which it's just a bag of loot akin to how in Diablo, if you kill monsters, there's like a loot drop of something. And a lot of people got excited about it and wanted to build upon it because that data is readily available on chain. But this reminds me that maybe it would actually be more pertinent to the metaverse if you write these inference rules on chain so that anybody can use them in their own metaverses, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you set those sort of rules, they're effectively a narrow waste API that anybody can use. Like these rules are set in stone as the rules of any sane world in which they <laughs> kind of operate the way that we expect them to. If you light wood on fire, it doesn't like turn into dust, for example, or, or like yeah. if, you wet, if you wet something, it, it doesn't light on fire. And so the, these sort of things could be written on chain as a set of inference rules that anybody can then build upon for their metaverse. That, that I think would be pretty interesting. Yeah, I think another way you could go is that, <clears throat> let's say that you wanted to imbue your NFTs with additional cool properties. So you bought a cool NFT and you want to make it sparkly. Now I could actually be I could sell the sparkly property to you on chain. So I have, you know, I mint sparkly NFTs and I say, if you purchase a sparkly NFT and somehow craft it with your existing NFT, then in the metaverse, 
in the in the in the metaverses that recognize the sparkly property, then they will make your NFT sparkly when they render it mm. in, in the in the game or something. And so you can have this whole marketplace where people are maybe creating inference rules and selling them, or maybe they're creating properties and selling the yeah. right to imbue your objects with those properties. Yeah. Uh, like the 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 properties which are effectively facts and data log like that that is i think easier to grasp the the inference rules i think will be a tougher tougher thing to get through maybe it has to go through a dao right because there's all sorts of unintended side effects that can happen with a new inference rules like i know one of the hard things about magic the gathering is balancing the game because effectively you're playing with cards that are inference rules right yeah and when you have like an overpowered card it's because it's combined with like some other card that that is it becomes overpowered as well and so that's why there's certain cards that are disallowed on tournaments because they make the game trivial so so yeah like that that might be interesting I can see that, especially if it applies to business as well. I'm not sure exactly like what sort of like properties or rules that business would want, but I can see something, maybe like certain like fulfillment processes or something like that, right? Like every business thinks that they're different. So that's why SAP and Oracle makes a lot of money, but I'm sure there's Mm. some commonalities to streamline, like everybody has to fulfill stuff so like maybe there are like these rules that any system like can pick up with their own data log engine they pick up these rules for free right as long as you have a generic data log engine and you just read the set of inference rules for the for like the system that you want on chain like you pick up all these properties for free yeah that would be interesting but yeah so I guess the only other thing that I was thinking of like a second, third order effect is I think more along the lines of the separation of data and being able to carry your program anywhere. Cause right now we have web apps that you can access anywhere you have the internet, but a lot of times the data is stuck in one place. And then, so with the Datomic and Datascript system, like you could effectively kind of divorce the two. And so there's nothing to say that the datomic like server is the centralized source of truth. You could have any number of the peers become the source of truth. I, technically Git mm-hmm. is also built this way, but nobody yeah. actually uses it like that. So maybe the point is moot, but definitely there are, even so there are benefits to that because I've been part of companies where it's happened more than once that some intern blew away the original like master repository, but like it wasn't a big deal to the company because everybody had a local like local copy of the entire repo. So they were able to like piece it back together. Yeah, yeah, I think there, the pieces are there, like we mentioned, where people are familiar with Firebase, people are familiar with Git, the, you know, the whole React ecosystem is is sort of open to and receptive to these ideas as long as you dress them up looking like JavaScript. Right. And don't, <laughs> you know, say scary words. So, yeah, I think that, I don't know, I, you know, I remember reading some retrospectives about 
Eve and, and, and why it failed. And I think it had a lot to do with the economics of uh, startups and hyper growth and those expectations yeah. and all yeah. of that. But I think like if you somehow are able to escape that sort of reality and work on this purely based on a technical merit, I think that like, like, you know, like we're both saying, the ideas are there for somebody to just kind of pick them up and maybe put them together. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, like the, the sort of world that we're talking about will create immense value for for developers and like end users. It would make the state of software a little bit more bearable than it is right now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, I... I don't have too too much else. I am like super, you know, excited about uh, about data log and all of its different variants. How about you? Yeah, I mean, you're already in space while I'm sitting in what looks like a library. So I mean, <laughs> well, so for once, for once, I'm not going to go to space or further into space or any in you know adjacent galaxy. I think I'm so excited about all the things that we've discussed not just in this episode but in this in the season that i'm going to return to earth so that i can maybe actually think about what i can do for the world putting together these ideas and 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 delivering value to people <laughs> so this right. is this is how excited i am i'm going to return to earth that's right and next season we'll return with more drinks more self-referential episodes and uh more new technology new technology on the edge of technology <laughs> on the allow me yeah. to introduce myself right so the, <laughs> yeah so so like we said we we will be back in the next couple of weeks we will um regroup we will think about our next season but for sure we will come back so thank you for all the listeners that have stuck with us the, the few that there are but we are small we're growing our production value can only get higher and our content can only get more self-referential. So this is <laughs> this is Will. And this is Sri. And we will see you in a couple of weeks. See you later. Enjoy season one and we will see you in season two. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.